This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, as they say on the Today Show, breaking news. Major changes in the air for what goes on the air for the longtime leader in morning TV. And Brian Stelter of the New York Times will tell us what it means. And major changes at the podium at Foggy Bottom. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton this week swore in Mike Hammer as the Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs, one of the most demanding jobs in Washington. We'll talk with Jamie Rubin, who held that post for many years in the Clinton administration to get at the heart of what it takes to talk for a nation. And as summer arrives, the heat swells and the campaign days reach their lengthiest, we'll talk to a veteran of many, Jonathan Prince, about one candidate prominent in the last two elections who's probably happy now not to be in the spotlight, John Edwards. Prince was a longtime aide to Edwards, and now that the Justice Department has announced they won't retry the former senator, Jonathan's here to share a personal reflection of working for the man and what his mistrial means for politics and campaign finance. And now we welcome back to our microphones. It's his second appearance on Polyoptics, Brian Stelter, media and digital journalism reporter for The New York Times. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Obviously, a major news story this week on your beat. Not only what you cover day to day for The New York Times, what you cover on your blog, Media Decoder, what you tweet about on a regular basis, but it's also what you are sort of enforcing a strange effect on your circadian rhythms by staying up uh, <laughs> through the night to, to write a book about morning TV. To what extent was this news about Ann Curry and negotiations for her departure a surprise to you this week? I had been waiting for the right time to write this story because for months it's been clear that some people at NBC News were unhappy with Ann Curry, that they wanted her off the show. There was another camp at NBC News that wanted to keep her on the show, at least for now. But it became clear this week that there were active negotiations going on to have her off the show. And to me, that was a, a, an important enough news story that now was the right time to write about it. It's one thing if people don't like you at your company. That happens at lots of companies. But now she's actually been offered another job and she's been asked, in effect, to leave. Uh, that's why it wasn't necessarily surprising uh, this week. Offered was, another job within the oh, yeah, NBC News division. You know, a foreign correspondent job. Uh, you know, the sort of thing uh, that would play to her strengths as someone who, who you know, frankly, she wants to be doing more of that anyway. She wants to be traveling overseas, but she doesn't want to give up the Today Show. And, and so it feels that this, this long, simmering story came to a boil this week, uh, and it became very clear that her days on the show are numbered. This long, simmering story began almost a year ago, obviously many, many years before that, but it began to begin a narrative exactly a year ago when Ann Curry took over the Today Show. Let's remember what it sounded like that first morning with, with Matt and Ann. You've come to know and love Ann Curry for 14 years as today's newscaster. Now she's heading to the anchor desk as we begin an exciting new era today, Thursday, June 9th, 2011. From NBC News, this is Today with Matt Lauer and Ann Curry, live from Studio 1A in Rockefeller Plaza. So, 
Brian, what happened over these last 12 months that has brought us to from June 2011 to June 2012? It's amazing to hear that music. It gets your heart pounding a little bit. Uh, you know, even on that day, there were some people that weren't believers in Ann Curry. She had spent 14 years on the news anchor desk. She was really good at that job. Uh, but there weren't. Uh, there were some people that didn't believe that she would fit in at the anchor desk with Matt Lauer. You listen to Matt Lauer's voice in that audio, and you wonder how excited is he to have her replace Meredith Vieira, who he loved. Meredith, of course, replaced Katie Couric, who he also loved. And Ann Curry was passed over at that time when Meredith came in. The job was given to Ann in part because people felt we couldn't pass over her again, that it would be worse to see her somewhere else than it would be to see her on the Today Show. But even on those first weeks, there was uh, discontent about Ann Curry and her anchoring style. Uh, maybe she was too empathetic or, or, or maybe she had, you know, maybe she had, a, a, you know, a, a uncomfortable style where she couldn't react to Matt Lauer, who's the main host of the show. It's really Matt's show and it's an ensemble around him. Uh, it seemed that the Today Show tried for a while to make it work. Uh, but when Matt Lauer renewed his contract in April uh, for another you know, several years at $25 million a year reportedly, it became more and more clear that this, uh, this forced marriage might not work. It really is in so many ways an economic story. Uh, your reporting, Mike Hale's reporting, sp- speak to a revenue uh, target of between 250 and $300 million in annual uh, revenue from advertising for the Today Show. And if you're paying Matt 25 of that and you pay the rest of the, the staff uh, something well below, uh, you are paying uh, other production costs. It is still the most profitable uh, program in news today, I think. Yes, it is. Um, it is. And when ratings start to slip and you have what you had uh, in past weeks with the upfronts and selling the advertising slots for these programs... Can you share with our viewers what the economic stakes really are? When you see uh, one-tenth of a rating point decline at a show like the Today Show, you're talking about tens, mil- tens of millions of dollars. And, and, of course, conversely, if you see one-tenth of one rating point of an uptick, you're talking about a big gain in advertising dollars. It doesn't happen overnight, but these trend lines do have dramatic effects on the advertising revenues. And that's important outside the Today Show because Today helps to subsidize the rest of NBC News. Uh, we have more correspondence around the country and the world than we otherwise would, thanks to the cooking segments on the Today Show because they bring in advertising dollars. Uh, that, that is why, in a nutshell, the stakes are so high for these news divisions. If, if, um, if the morning shows are helping to fund the rest of the operation, and if the morning shows lose ground, that can be damaging more broadly. And what was, at the same time, uh, the uptick of performance for Good Morning America? How did, uh, why did... Yeah. If, if today's show started to slip, why did Good Morning America start to rise? You know, in part because Good Morning America just didn't lose as many viewers as the Today Show. In the world of television, which is you know, endlessly fragmenting into smaller and smaller pieces, just staying the same is equivalent to gaining. So because the Today Show is losing ground, between 5 and 10% of their viewers have left this year. GMA has been able to gain a few of those, but more importantly, GMA has just not lost viewers. So as a result, they look bigger in this ecosystem. On any given day, today still wins, but GMA is chipping away. And if, if you plot out the trend line from the last three years, 
everybody who looked at that trend line would say GMA is going to eventually win. You and I have had this conversation before, but I still want to press it, which is in some of your reporting and David Carr's reporting and Mike Hale's reporting, you say that in some of these weeks that G- GMA has beat the Today Show, it's been by margins as as low as 35,000 viewers or something like that. And yet the uh, optical significance of a win for uh, Robin Roberts and George Stephanopoulos versus a loss for Matt Lauer and Ann Curry right. is enormous. And one of the things I've posited in the past, which is Morning Joe and their style of uh, conversation and what they put on the air is so much more interesting for a viewer like me that I've stopped watching the Today Show because I can't right. deal with uh, a show that begins with Jerry Sandusky and an attack on a school bus teacher. That's just not what I want my kids to be hearing right. in the morning while we're making breakfast. Right. And, and Morning Joe is a niche show, but with a very interesting, influential audience. Uh, and that's, that's proof of fragmentation right there. Within NBC, which owns the Today Show, it also owns MSNBC, which has Morning Joe, and, and CNBC, which has Squawk Box, and the Golf Channel, which has Morning Drive. It's, it's almost as if the Today Show might be uh, letting its own company eat away at it. Yeah, I, I think it's a matter, there is definitely some cannibalization, because I am brand loyal to NBC. I love Brian Williams. I like what he's doing at Rock Center. Um, and I, I've, I grew up with, uh, with Tom Brokaw and Jane Pauley and Brian Gumbel and right. Katie Couric, but now there's a different offering that appeals more to my tastes, and it may be niche, but it's still taking off an important sliver and, right. and taking some of that audience away from their flagship brand. It sure is, and of course, if you have a serious political conversation on Morning Joe on MSNBC, and if you have economic conversation on CNBC, then the flagship Today Show may feel less pressure to cover politics and business. It may end up going in a softer direction. Uh, you know, I, I think we're seeing in the morning shows, in general, a trend toward softer, more entertaining features. And that might be because the news is either online on the internet when we wake up with our phones, or it's on these cable channels. There's a tweet up uh, by Jeremy Jamie Giddens. I happen to love Ann Curry. I guess I'm in the minority. I don't think she's the problem. Today today going all entertainment tonight is. is the problem. And, and, you know, as you talk about a division that, that brands itself NBC News or CBS News and ABC News, and for whatever reason, your editorial decision is let's spend the first 10 minutes on Jerry Sandusky, as horrible as it is, there's much bigger things going on in the world. You know, Matt Lauer is actually a, a voice uh, that would agree with you uh, frequently. Uh, he is at the Today Show trying to push it away from the tabloid stories and more toward hard news stories. Not every day, but oftentimes he finds himself trying to have the show be more serious, especially in that first half hour. It's a constant back and forth. And in fact, Ann Curry, I think, often sided with Matt Lauer. Listen to me already referring to her in the past tense. Uh, we don't know if, in fact, she'll leave. It seems she will, but we're not sure. But both of them wanted to have a more serious show. Of course, then the producers of the Today Show look at GMA, which is gaining ground, and they see a softer show, and they have to figure out how to compete. They have to figure out how to balance what their anchors want and what their viewers want. This media story is really playing out uh, at an interesting timing for you and your life, Brian Stelter. You're you're you're. You're having some weird hours these days in addition to your <laughs> yes. time, your days reporting yeah. for The New York Times. How, what's happening in your life and, and why is this well, so I, important? I'm working now on chapters of a book about morning television. It'll come out in the spring of 2013. It's a very interesting time to be writing about it. And uh, as a result, I'm getting up at 4 a.m. and watching all the shows. Brian, I hope you'll come back as this story unfolds. We see who's going to replace Anne and, uh, and where the morning show story continues to go. Thanks for joining us. 
So as we said at the top of our broadcast, uh, one of the toughest roles in the United States government is running the public affairs shop at the U.S. State Department and being at the podium to talk about the whole range of issues uh, that affect United States foreign policy. And I wanted to bring on to talk about some of the things based on what's happening today. Uh, one of my old friends, Jamie Rubin, who was the State Department spokesman for many years during the Clinton administration while Madeleine Albright was Secretary of State. So, Jamie, thanks for stopping by. Josh, it's great to be with you here and listen to your new radio show. President Obama went to Los Cabos, Mexico for the G20 this week, one of the key meetings that was not covered uh, a lot on TV uh, because of the Eurozone crisis was his first meeting uh, with President Putin of Russia, now back in that role that he had for so many years after serving as prime minister. Let's hear a little audio of uh, President Obama's statement at the Bilatin. And what I'd like to do is just move around the world and some of the hotspots and get your view on what should be coming out from the U.S. podium uh, on some of these issues. The United States and Russia have been able to make significant progress uh, on uh, a wide range of issues, uh, including uh, the New START Treaty, uh, the 123 Agreement, uh, the work we've done on uh, Russia's ascension to the WTO, uh, and uh, setting up uh, a presidential process uh, whereby uh, issues of trade and commerce, science, technology, uh, are all discussed at a much more intensive level. Uh, we agreed that we need to build on these successes, uh, even as we recognize that there are going to be areas uh, of disagreement and uh, that we can uh, find constructive ways uh, to manage through uh, any bilateral tensions. Okay, that's standard bilat statement fair, Jamie. What's happening behind the scenes? Well, it is, and and the president uh, and the those who are speaking on behalf of the U.S. government have a, a kind of a mantra, and the mantra is, you know, we're making a lot of progress, but we have a long way to go. And you pretty much have to fit uh, when you're dealing with a country like Russia, where U.S.-Russian relations are very complex. They uh, have taken a bit of a downturn recently with the election of Putin and the uh, movement away from the kind of reform policies that people had hoped to see. You you want to praise what has taken place that is positive, as the president did, but you have to do it in a way, uh, and the, this is the challenge, that makes it clear you're, you're you're not naive, that you understand that Russia has moved away from its uh, direction towards uh, of support for Western policies and Western reforms, more towards a, a kind of a classic uh, balance of power where Russia is a large state that is going to have areas of significant disagreement with the United States. And, and that's what's really not stated here. And, and, and those issues, Syria, um, uh, Iran, um, many, many questions about Russia's crackdown on its uh, domestic opponents, the elimination of a free media, the elimination of uh, political parties to oppose Putin. All of these things uh, are at, at stake here. On the other hand, uh, we need Russia for certain things, particularly, and this wasn't stated by the president, uh, to be able to get uh, supplies to our troops in Afghanistan. And that is an issue that is very, very uh, important to the Pentagon because 
the two routes in, one are from the north through uh, Russia and, and through uh, the, the stands, so to speak, the areas of the former Soviet Union around Afghanistan, and the other route is through Pakistan. And at the same time, we've been talking, you know, the, in recent months, the Pakistan-U.S. relations have taken a real nosedive, and we don't have an ability to get our equipment through. So the president has to weigh all these factors, nuclear, arms control, uh, lack of reform inside Russia, the need for Russia on Afghanistan, the opposition to Russia on, uh, on Syria, where the U.S. and Russia appear to be heading in a different direction, and uh, the so far uh, coordination on Iran. So with U.S. and Russia, uh, the job is to uh, communicate that there have been areas of agreement, there is progress, but always to be clear-eyed and, and honest about uh, the differences. Jamie, one of the first times we met, I think you were on the video link into the Situation Room from your post working for uh, Madeleine Albright, who was then our ambassador to the United Nations, and we were talking about an upcoming uh, engagement with then-Russian President Boris Yeltsin. And, you know, in 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 our memories from... Brezhnev to Gorbachev uh, on drop-off in there to uh, Boris Yeltsin, Vladimir Putin, Medvedev, and now back to Putin. How does the U.S. diplomatic corps look at, one, sort of the recycling of Putin as the personality in the Kremlin, and two, what constraints are you under when a relationship between two heads of state like Barack Obama and Vladimir Putin is not the sort of warm embracing relationship that you and I remember from trips to Moscow and Hyde Park with Boris Yeltsin and the way he got along with yeah, Bill Clinton. Yeah, B- Bill and Boris, the Bill and Boris show was what we used to talk about during the uh, the, the first Clinton administration and part of the second. And and that was a, a, you know, a genuine, warm friendship between two world leaders. They didn't always agree, but they really did like each other. They got a kick out of each other. Uh, there were some hilarious moments you probably remember Hyde in Park. Hyde Park where Boris Yeltsin, uh, apparently having had a couple drinks, made a, a crack about the press corps and, um, and, and there was a lot of laughter. This is not like that. It's not like that and it, uh, for Putin and any world leader right now. I think Putin comes from a very, very different tradition. Uh, Yeltsin was proud of the way he had uh, helped to orchestrate Russia's uh, revolution uh, out of the Soviet Union and was proud of making Russia a player on the world stage uh, for the first time as part of the uh, group of eight nations. Putin has a very different uh, uh, modus operandi. He uh, is never warm and fuzzy. Um, He has taken Russia in a direction that is, you know, arguably uh, a step back when it comes to the reform of Russia that many people hoped for. But on the other hand, I think there's a certain clarity now. Uh, Many people imagined that Medvedev, the predecessor to Putin, was going to bring about real change in Russia, and it created a kind of good cop, bad cop situation between Putin and Medvedev, and that's over now, and we don't have to pretend there's some grand reform movement going on inside Russia, and we can deal with Russia as a, and this is what I would argue is increasingly the tone, in a very practical way, without the romance and the illusion that Russia is about to rejoin the West or join the West for the first time, uh, but instead a transactional relationship 
that we have areas of agreement, we work on those, we have areas of disagreement, and there's nothing Russia loves more, and this is the one area that's very important to remember, to be perceived as a world power. And that's where the job of, of the administration and the spokesman, as long as Russia is perceived and, and given the credit as if it is still a Russia-US uh, bilateral relationship ruling the world, they like that idea. We don't. The US doesn't, isn't comfortable uh, with that. The Russians do. And so you have to balance between uh, all of those different factors. But the bottom line is that um, Russia uh, has and I think the, the diplomatic corps recognizes this, uh, has moved steadily in the last, uh, the Putin era, towards a, a, a lack of reform domestically and a very hard-nosed attitude internationally. So you appropriately say that the warm and fuzzy nature of our relationship with Boris Yeltsin is long in the past. I might posit that that goes both ways too, that our current president is less embracing on a personal level uh, with foreign leaders, whether it's uh, Boris Yeltsin or or anyone else. And so someone needs to step up and create sort of the polyoptic presence of the United States. And there was a huge article uh, profile in Foreign Affairs this week by Susan Glasser evaluating the uh, the work at the State Department of, of Hillary Clinton. And, you know, we remember a few months ago um, she was uh, in... What event was it? And she was photographed sort of late night. Oh, it was Columbia, height of the Secret Service problem. Yes. Uh, And she was at the club Havana and and enjoying herself. But one of the things that comes out of this foreign policy analysis, and you have people like Martin Indyk and others weighing in on their, their thoughts of Secretary Clinton, is that while our current president may be a little less... Uh, present on the world stage, she's really stepped up and filled that void. Well, the Secretary of State's role has evolved over the years. Um, you know, during the post-World War II era, those in my business remember the famous uh, Dean Acheson, who was the grand diplomat and grand architect of American foreign policy. And, and Harry Truman, as president, really ceded to Dean Acheson the primary role, not just in the presentation of American foreign policy, but the making of American foreign policy, the decisions about treaties, about alliances, about uh, where and when the United States would engage. That era is gone. And uh, the White House, uh, increasingly with each presidency, plays a bigger and bigger role in the formulation of the policy. And so what is uh, the result is that the Secretary of State's role in many respects has become uh, the crucial part of the role is to uh, develop working relationships with the foreign ministers around the world. And Hillary Clinton has done that, I think, extremely well. The ministers in Europe, in uh, Asia, feel that uh, they have a personal relationship with her. She is able to, uh, to work that problem pretty well. And part of the reason for that, and we forget this here in the United States, is that most foreign ministers in most of the countries we're talking about are politicians too. They're members of parliament in parliamentary systems. And so they uh, think about politics, they talk about politics as a natural part of their job, their coalition governments that come and go. And Hillary Clinton, obviously, compared to other recent secretaries of state, is in a, in a in a better position to talk natural politics with them. So I think she really has played uh, that role of the Secretary of State extremely well, namely to build a dozen or 15 solid working relationships with 
foreign ministers who uh, do the, the, the world's diplomacy. The, the uh, former White House Chief of Staff, Rahm Emanuel, now the mayor of Chicago, uh, was successful uh, late last year of getting, uh, becoming the host of both the uh, quadrennial, I think, NATO summit and also the annual G8 summit. It was the U.S.'s turn to host. Uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, only the NATO summit went forward in Chicago. The G8 was moved back to Camp David. And as I looked at the optics of that event, where you know that uh, the supporting cast of entourage and press and security is largely outside the compound in the Catoctin Mountains, it looked, through the imagery anyway, as a much more uh, roll-up-your-sleeves, relaxed affair than these set pieces that are held in the large convention centers of world capitals with raging protests only a mile away. As you've watched the evolution of major summits, there was not a G20 summit that involved world leaders a few years ago. Is it time to move back to a more settled, uh, quiet uh, engagement with world leaders than having these, these major set pieces that involve so many aircraft, so many people flying in, so much cost, for basically the reading of a communique and a photo op. Yeah, I think there is a recognition in the foreign policy community that the proliferation of summits uh, has gotten out of hand and that these meetings uh, with large groups of leaders that have so many formal components to it that end up uh, taking an enormous amount of time and energy and money uh, to put on uh, is, is not the way to go. On the other hand, uh, the world is now uh, more uh, involved with multiple nations having a role to play. The rise of India, the rise of China, the rise of Brazil, uh, Russia to a degree, um, means that there are 10 or 15 or 20 leaders whose views matter, especially, uh, remember what we're talking about here, most of the work in the last few weeks has been focused on economics and the role of, uh, of many, many different countries in trying to uh, stir the pot to yield a, a better result economically. And so I, I think you're right that, that the people in the business, the people doing the day-to-day -day diplomacy, would prefer to see the old days where leaders actually got to talk to each other, make decisions together, get to know each other, and make compromises, because there is no substitute for leaders sitting down making compromises, all the diplomacy in the world, all the trips of Hillary Clinton, all the, you know, ambassadors going in and out of foreign ministries uh, is very, very small compared to uh, leaders sitting down and making actual decisions. And without the distraction of the chaos of, I think you're thinking of places like Seattle and the World Trade Organization when there were riots in the streets or the big Davos meetings where there were counter summits and counter demonstrations. So I think there's there's some of that. Um, and, and, and that's a good thing that we're moving towards trying to get back to working summits. But I don't think uh, in a world where there are 10 or 12 or 14 major players, you're going to be able to get away from a, a fair amount of airplanes and, and, and formal sit-downs. And obviously one of the major roles at the summit and every day at Foggy Bottom is speaking on behalf of the United States. And you were in that role for uh, so many years for Secretary Albright and President Clinton. Uh, sometimes when the summitry moved to places like Y River or Camp David to focus on um, on Middle East peace negotiations. T can you take us back to before you started working for Ambassador Albright at the UN? What preparation goes into 
developing the background and ability to be a State Department spokesman, first at the UN and then moving down to Foggy Bottom? Well, I was a little unique in this regard because I didn't come at the job from a, uh, the perspective of someone who had experience in the press. I had a, a long background in foreign affairs. I worked at a think tank uh, called the Arms Control Association at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Then I was a staff member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee working on issues like the INF Treaty in 1987, Bosnia in, in the uh, early 1990s, and the Gulf first Gulf War. So I had an advantage to, compared to some in that I had some, an experience in, in foreign affairs. But I think the, the real difference today compared to when I was working at the, the State Department um, is, is that at the time we were there, it was just the really the beginning of the 24-hour news uh, cycle. And there, the State Department podium uh, was a place where uh, you could really uh, communicate the nation's business uh, once a day. And that's gone. And, you know, towards the end of my time when there began to be the first rise of Fox News and, and uh, MSNBC and some of the other 24-hour news channels, you began to see more and more talk shows in the evening, and I ended up having to do a lot of that in the evening. But my point is that in, in those days, um, you know, let's say the Y River talks you were talking about when you uh, had the United States hosting talks between Israelis and Palestinians about uh, uh, the, the West Bank and peace in the Middle East. It, there had been an agreement where the two leaders had agreed that none of their representatives would speak. And the only person to speak was the United States. And yet you had thousands of journalists converging on this place because <clears throat> this was a unique experience to have uh, so many, uh, so much effort put into the peace process. President Clinton coming every day, flying in and out on his hel helicopter, and a way had to be found uh, to communicate. And so Joe Lockhart, who was the spokesman of the president at the time, and I um, did do a lot of briefing and did do a lot of communication. But what we realized was that there really is no way to block the, especially the Israelis and the Palestinians from. Uh, talking to their media. And what we also realized is that once something gets in the system, and this was the beginning back then, it is transmitted around the world instantly. So I remember times where I'd be at the podium or at the podium at Y River, and a journalist, this is the beginning of that process, would be reporting to me what happened in the world from their computer. And that changed everything. Because uh, in those days, uh, you know, the U.S. government used to be the provider of information. That used to be the one, the, uh, the, uh, we used to be able to inform the public of what was going on around the world. Now often it was the other way around, where the, let's say, the Reuters reporter had on his computer what was going on in Israel. And I had to be able to react to that instantly. And that spawned a whole bunch of changes. And now you have Twitter, you have uh, Facebook accounts, you have a, you know, a, a, a person at the State Department whose whole job it is to communicate through, uh, through Twitter and, and, and Facebook. Those things didn't exist back then. I noticed that uh, James P. Rubin does have a Twitter account. 
has about 100 followers and yet has never sent a tweet. What's preventing you from getting into the Twitter age? I didn't know I had one. I've never <laughs> set one up. Um, you know, I, I have a different role right now. I'm working for Governor Cuomo, and, and I do some commenting on foreign affairs and discreet times like this show or occasionally writing articles. And my, my uh, I think that's until I'm independent again, I think it'd be inappropriate. Yes, you're definitely at a different podium these days. I'm, I'm looking at you uh, with the uh, CEO of Delta Airlines, uh, Richard Anderson, um, late last year announcing the single largest airline expansion in New York in more than 40 years. What's it like to now be in the infrastructure and Well, I'm looking at business? your photo, and it was one of the first things I did in my new job. The governor asked me to represent him at a, an event where Delta was expanding its terminal and uh, committing to a multi-million dollar uh, revamping of a terminal at, at LaGuardia. Um, and it's a very different, uh, very different thing than foreign affairs. I think what what isn't different is that there are certain modes of uh, operation in government, and I have some experience in that. Um, you know, right now the world is uh, is smaller. Uh, globalization matters to New Yorkers in a way it never did before. You know, we're talking about foreign policy. I'm, I was hired by Governor Cuomo for a job called uh, Counselor for Competitiveness. That kind of thing never existed before, and the reason it didn't exist is because we now have competitors. Uh, American foreign policy was designed to create a world where we had free market democracies grow and uh, hopefully avoid uh, wars between them. And we largely succeeded. We helped the world to develop into one where we now have to compete against Germany, compete against India, compete against China, compete against all these countries. In the old days, we never worried about that and, and, never, and business came to us naturally. And now our success in helping to create a competitive uh, world of market economies has created a situation where Americans now are thinking, oh, now we have to do the kind of things that Germany does, that France does, that Japan does, that Thailand does to bring business to our country and to promote our exports in a way we never had before. Jamie Rubin, thanks so much for spending a few minutes uh, with us talking about the whole range of issues that are facing not only the world and also New York. Uh, best of luck with the role as it continues, and we'll see you down the road in polyoptics. Thank you very much, Josh. Enjoy the show. So now on to the last uh, segment of Polyoptics, joined again by my friend Jonathan Prince, who is actually our first guest on episode one of Polyoptics. This is episode 61. So 60 episodes later, Jonathan, thanks for coming back and joining us. And you've brought a friend this week, haven't you? I do have a friend here, uh, my number one producer and traveling companion, Mr. Liam Prince, five years old. Liam, welcome to Polyoptics yourself. Can you say hello to our listeners? Hello. Uh, Liam, uh, you and I spent the weekend together last weekend. What did we do last weekend, and where were we? Disney Cruise. Tell me about it. Did you like it? Yes. And what kind of things did you like about it? When Mickey was dressed in the American flag costume. That was awesome. Um, and we had a lot of good food, and uh, and you 
we shared a cabin with my son Toby and my daughter Annabelle, and it was a great time, wasn't it? Yeah, and we shared a room, and and one part was funny. <sighs> there was like a thing, and if you pull it down, a bed comes down. That's right. Trundle beds make a tiny little cabin spacious enough for five to sleep. But speaking of a Mickey Mouse operation, I want to switch to your dad, and bring the activity not in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, but to Greensboro, North Carolina. Jonathan, uh, a few weeks ago, the um, trial of former senator, vice presidential candidate, presidential candidate, John Edwards wrapped up, and he was uh, he was acquitted, or he was uh, acquitted on one count and a mistrial on all the other counts. Let's hear what Senator Edwards said outside the courthouse in Greensboro. I want to make sure that everyone hears from me and from my voice that while I do not believe I did anything illegal or ever thought I was doing anything illegal, I did an awful, awful lot that was wrong. And there is no one else responsible for my sins. Jonathan, I was emailing back and forth with Kim Severson of the New York Times who covered the trial, uh, mostly to get a flavor of what it was like for a New York Times journalist to be hanging out for so long uh, and hearing so much testimony in Greensboro. But uh, one thing that I reflected on a few weeks ago was it was probably one of Edward's best speeches he gave in a long time. What were your thoughts as the uh, uh, verdicts were announced and he came out and talked with his family next to him and his daughter next to him. You know, my my primary thought, to be honest, well, certainly, especially for his kids, I'm happy that this is something they can put in the past. My real thought was, thank God for the campaign finance system in the United States. Uh, this whole, you talked about a Mickey Mouse operation. Uh, this entire prosecution was just absurd. Uh, and that is not to in any way defend John Edwards' behavior in his marriage, in his family life, or in you know, conducting that campaign while he was conducting other uh, other pursuits. But it is to say that this was, you know, a, a politically motivated prosecution at its heart by a Republican operative who's now a congressional candidate. Uh, and it had no real basis in campaign finance law. You know, I, what I've said to many people is that if John Edwards had come to me in the fall of 2007 and said, hey, you know what, it's true. I'm having an affair with Riel, but Andrew Young is going to take the blame for the baby. And we just need to hide Andrew and Riel from the press for the next couple of months. But obviously, do it on the up and up. Make sure you use those you know, uh, campaign contributions subject to the federal finance limits. Declare all the expenditures. Do it by the book. I would have looked at him like he was out of his mind and said, you're crazy. That's illegal personal use of campaign funds. And so the entire prosecution case rested on this idea that spending conducted by private people that the campaign could not have spent legally was somehow campaign finance spending. It was just crazy. So can you bring us back to 2007 and 2008? You're in the campaign. You have been an aide to Senator Edwards in his presidential campaign in 2004. You were working on the independent expenditure when he was a vice presidential candidate to John Edwards and certainly knew him many years in advance as he prepared for a run in 2004. High hopes back in in that campaign when he was both a candidate and Senator John Kerry's running mate, and then up for the second turn. What did it feel like as you were moving down to North Carolina and preparing for what seemed like a improved campaign now that you learned so much from the first go around? Well, in many ways, he was a terrific candidate in two thousand seven, uh, and obviously the, the the events of 
the 2007 campaign from the perspective of the Edwards campaign really unfolded before most people were paying a ton of attention to this campaign. They were mostly in 2007 uh, and to the you know few weeks after the Iowa caucuses when he came in second between uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Uh, but his campaign obviously ended shortly after that. The Real Hunter affair, uh, in public, that is, played out really over the course of 2008 after he was no longer a candidate. But in 2007, you know, there was a lot of optimism that, one, he was uh, articulating a message that was important in the race, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis income inequality and the plight of the poor in the United States. It was a very progressive message. And as a candidate, you know, he was very good. He was very good on the stump. He was very good on the trail. Uh, we were raising good money, certainly not the same kind of money that uh, Senator Clinton and Senator Obama were raising, then Senator Obama were raising. But, uh, you know, there was optimism that this was going to be a tight campaign against two really terrific candidates, but there was some possibility for success. What was it like for you, just on a personal level, to move from you'd spent so much time in Washington, D.C., New York City, the campaign maybe using uh, Bill Clinton's campaign when it was based in Little Rock in 1992 as a model for his his run to the presidency, you're going to have to move down to Raleigh, North Carolina. What was it like uh, living in Raleigh well, at the at the grassroots stages of a campaign? 2007 was Chapel Hill, actually. Chapel not Hill, Raleigh. sorry. Right. No, you're, uh, the first Edwards presidential campaign was Raleigh. The second was Chapel Hill. Uh, you know, it, you just heard a little uh, background chatter from. Uh, my executive producer over there. And if anything made it difficult, of course, that's exactly what it was. I had, uh, you know, it, early in the 2007 campaign in May, after I had taken an apartment in Chapel Hill, but still, uh, you know, maintained a home in New York, my son was born. And so, uh, you know, that just adds a very significant layer, of, as you know, and uh, as Jamie knows as well, who travels a lot and uh, has a kid, uh, you know, adds a personal complexity to it that, uh makes it challenging because you want to be back where your family is and certainly where your son is. Uh, I was in touch with you enough during 07 and 08 uh, and also watching enough to know that at least you were trying to make the best of it as you could. You were working with people like Nick Baldick, Jennifer Palmieri, uh, Joe Trippi, uh, and in what I think might be a very early use of video to help fundraising. We were talking earlier about uh, campaign finance. You and Trippi appeared in a fundraising video around Senator Edwards' birthday. Let's hear a little bit of it. This is John no. Prince, Joe Trippi, and it may be my pie. He's, 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 yeah. he's Jonathan Prince. Yeah, I'm Joe anyway, Trippi. here we go. So this is going to be really easy, and we're hoping many of you do a better job of this than, than, than we do. Should we show the ingredients? Butter. No. Milk. Flour. Eggs. Eggs. There's some pecans around here somewhere, but we'll get to those later on. Whisks. Flour. Fun. How much milk? Jonathan, give us a little background about how that video came about and how much did it raise? Well, so Joe Trippi joined our campaign in uh, the spring of 2007, pretty early in the campaign. And Joe and I, who get along terrifically and I think had a great collaboration on the campaign, certainly struck people as a little bit of uh, an odd couple. Uh, and, you know, both in terms of people's perceptions of our politics and our background. Uh, and, you know, Joe has a reputation as kind of a bomb-throwing outsider a little bit in a good way. Uh, I've had, you know, a fair amount of experience inside the government as well. Um, and so, you know, it was just kind of very entertaining for people to see us together. And we had a little bit of a routine that we would, you know, yank out, whether it was for staff meetings or for press conferences, uh, that, you know, was added a little levity and a little uh, humor to the process. We, we, you know, as a campaign, I think we tried to not take ourselves too seriously. 
uh, and there are advantages and disadvantages to that. But this this fundraising video was Joe's idea. It was around uh, uh, John's birthday, I think. Uh, it was based on the John Edwards' mom's secret pecan pie recipe. Uh, of course, we didn't actually make a pecan pie. Those were two store-bought pies in the video that we just kind of doctored up with various ingredients. Uh, mostly for humor effect, and it raised a decent amount of money. I, I don't remember, to be honest, anymore what it raised, but you know, it, I, I, I'll say a couple hundred thousand dollars, and I could be entirely wrong. So if someone fact checks me, I'm not standing by my numbers at all. Talking about how far we've come, uh, let's let's listen to a little clip from the most recent use of, or one of the most recent use of video in fundraising. Now from 2012, we're in New York City, and we're in the office of Anna Winter. Hi, I'm Anna Winter, and I'm so lucky in my work that I'm able to meet some of the most incredible women in the world, women like Sarah Jessica Parker and Michelle Obama. These two wonderful women and I are hosting a dinner along with the president in New York City to benefit the Obama campaign on June the 14th. It'll be a fantastic evening, and you can join us. Now, Jonathan, President Obama has got a little bit of blowback for including someone like Anna Wintour uh, in this campaign video. We talked last week with uh, Joshua Green from Business Week, wrote a fascinating article about how people like Wintour, Steven Spielberg, Eric Schmidt, uh, Steve Jobs, before he passed away, were important influences about the marketing focus of the campaign. But they are under uh, an enormous amount of pressure to raise an enormous amount of money any way possible. You were talking earlier about the campaign finance law and how that affected the Edwards trial. But as a person who's worked both within campaigns and the expenditures of a campaign committee and the independent expenditures, uh, how do you see the, the state of campaign finance today and the, the, and the forces that, that make a campaign like Obama's use a, a video like that? Well, you're raising... There's kind of a host of issues you've just raised. The first of all is the kind of sorry state of campaign finance law in, in the United States today in the wake of the Citizens United uh, decision, which is essentially has allowed, I mean, you had this absurd uh, confluence of events where Edwards was on trial for perhaps uh, directing something around $900,000 of uh, spending to hide his mistress from the press, while at the same time you have a new campaign finance regime that has unleashed literally billions of dollars of, in independent spending uh, on, on the campaigns and on the public. And you know the the amount of money that the Fred Barron and and Bunny Mellon were supposed to have uh, spent on Edwards' behalf is dwarfed by the amount of money being poured in the campaign, and would have just you know they would have created a super PAC, uh, to, you know. The Riel and Andrew cover-up super PAC. Right. Um, so uh, you, you have that just kind of odd confluence of events for starters. A at the same time, you know, if you're the president uh, in particular, while the, the spending of the Obama campaign and its allies, Priorities USA and other groups like that, may ultimately be dwarfed by the spending on the Republican side, particularly because you've got people like Sheldon Adelson, the casino magnet who is, you know, literally promising to make his contributions limitless, and you've got huge corporate interests, oil interests, and uh, other interests who are determined to try and elect a Republican. While the president's spending may be dwarfed by them, the advantage the president has, of course, is that he's the president. And that gives him, you know, whenever, whatever, however, wherever news coverage. Presidential campaigns are unique in campaigns in that uh, alone among uh, elections really in our country, earned media or free media, the value of that coverage dwarfs whatever you can put on the air and paid media. If you actually were to assign, you know, dollar value to coverage on the evening news, you know, 
gross rating points, like we measure the weight of uh, television advertising, the coverage on the TV news would just blow it out of you know out of the water. So if you've got a narrative that is a good narrative and that you're reinforcing your message in everything you do, whether it's speeches and policy pronouncements and all those things, you know, spending pay, paid spending can help amplify that, but it's not going to. Uh, be all you need to get your message across. So talking about competing narratives, Bloomberg has a poll out this week on a national basis, shows a considerable lead for President Obama over Governor Mitt Romney, and yet we know that this election will come down to six or eight uh, battleground states, some the same as we've usually seen, some new ones uh, on the horizon. Uh, how do you evaluate the, the state of the, the battleground at this point? Well, I think the good news for the president is that in most of the states that we consider, you know, kind of, and by we, I mean kind of collectively the crowd of operatives on both sides, the journalists who pay a lot of attention to it. I think most of the states where that we consider to be the battlegrounds, the president has an advantage. And his advantage in those states is probably, uh, you know, more significant of a higher margin than his national advantage. I'm not sure that anyone entirely buys that Bloomberg poll uh, with the president being 13 points up. But the president has also been consistently ahead of uh, Mitt Romney for months, you know, closer to two or three points. But cons I, I don't think there's been uh, a national poll in six weeks, maybe more, that's shown Romney uh, ahead of the president. You once worked for a Massachusetts Republican, Governor John Silver. No, he was a Democrat. He was <laughs> <laughs> but a very conservative one. Uh, he was the first of the wave of new Democrats. So was... if you were in Boston today uh, talking to the Republican candidate uh, nominee for president, Governor Mitt Romney, what realistic, practical, honest advice would you have to give him to say what he needs to do to uh, to make a, a greater dent in Obama's lead and prevail in November? Well, as you know, Josh, I'm not in the business of uh, helping Republicans get elected president of the United States. I would say, though, that the advice that I have is fairly obvious. He ought to, you know, uh, unveil a plan for the future and a prescription for the future that can uh, keep this economy moving in the right direction, create jobs, all the things that he says he's talking about. His problem, of course, is that he is hamstrung by the far right Tea Party's, you know, uh, stranglehold on the Republican Party right now, which is constantly backs him into a corner and take positions that are more extreme than probably Mitt Romney really believes. But of course, it's hard to tell because Mitt Romney has articulated many, many different beliefs over the years. So let's assume that, that this campaign tracks the way the polls look now, uh, that typically the, the Republicans uh, are running a candidate who was uh, prominent last time, and this is his chance this time. The incumbent Democratic president uh, gets another four years. But come this late November of this year or early December, you'll start to see the contours of a 2016 campaign begin to take shape. Who do you see as the major players on both sides? Well, the, the two major players to start with are two people who would have an enormous leg up in terms of securing the nomination and neither of whom has indicated yet a desire to necessarily run. And that's, of course, Vice President Biden and Secretary of State Clinton. Uh, I think both of them would be terrific and very, very formidable candidates, both for the nomination and ultimately for the presidency. And it's not clear if either of them are going to run. And you've got, you know, a host of other great candidates out there. We're here in New York. Uh, Andrew Cuomo has certainly made no uh, real secret of his interest in the race. Uh, and I think especially if Vice President Biden or uh, Secretary Clinton were not in the race, he'd be a very strong candidate. But I, I think it'll be, you know, very important to see where those two uh, members of this administration kind of end up in their thinking. So as we let you go, Jonathan, as we head off and enjoy the rest of this summer weekend, I'm looking at uh, the 
summer 2012 issue of Lucky Peach magazine, a major article in it, Photo Op Food by Jonathan Prince. Uh, as you know, I'm a huge fan of taking candidates to the Iowa State Fair and any other places where food is involved. Tell me about this article and, and what inspired you to do it. Well, Lucky Peach is a terrific uh, magazine. It's a quarterly food magazine by David Chang of uh, the Momofuku Empire, Peter Meehan, the former New York Times food writer, uh, and McSweeney's, the great uh, San Francisco publishing house. And it covers food in all its variety. This issue is devoted sort of to um, food in America, Americana. Uh, there's a lot about the movie Diner. My pal Brian Koppelman, who's a writer director, is in there writing a piece about what diner meets him and how food uh, matters to him. And this piece, of course, uh, connects two great American pursuits, food and politics. As you say, you know, food is one of those lowest common denominator issues. Uh, like I say in the piece, there are a couple of things that are, there are a few things that are, you know, useful for making a connection with voters, showing them you're like them, that are regional, that are personal, that people are passionate about. One is religions, why you see candidates going to churches and mosques and synagogues all the time because they are, one, often people of faith, and two, because they want to make a connection. Two, of course, is sports. That, you know, can always be a mixed bag. We've all seen the uh, stories of someone going to throw out a first pitch and getting booed, but it's also important to, as the president has made clear, and Bill Clinton before him, and George W. Bush, too, being a real, being a first fan can be a real good way to connect uh, with with voters. And then, of course, there's food, which is why, as you say, people go to the Iowa State Fair and get fried Twinkies and pork tenderloins. And uh, there's a picture in there uh, of Michelle Bachman eating a corn dog. My one big piece of advice in this piece is don't ever, ever, ever uh, get your picture taken eating a corn dog because it just doesn't ever look right. Uh, and you'll see that in that Michelle Bachman photo. But the, the only way that works is in radio because it does exactly. not translate to print. A corn, uh, the uh, the corn dog photo op on radio is a, a terrific look. <laughs> Jonathan Prince, Liam Prince, uh, thank you so much for stopping by on this summer weekend uh, and for sharing your reflections both on on uh, Edwards and the hopefully the end of that saga and the beginning of 2016 and a never-ending string of food photo ops. Check out the uh, summer 2012 issue of Lucky Beach Magazine, Photo Op Food by Jonathan Prince. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Josh. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. Polyoptics.